Hello, I'm Enrique Cerna, and welcome again to the KCTS 9 Digital Studios Podcast. In recent years, the Seattle Police Department has been under the microscope for excessive use of force and evidence of biased policing. That led to a 2012 consent decree between the city and the U.S. Justice Department requiring Seattle police to comply with federally mandated reforms. Now, in the late 60s and into the 70s, there was another reform effort underway in Seattle and King County aimed at bringing down a corrupt police payoff system here. Chris Bailey was then a young lawyer who became a key player in that reform movement when he became King County prosecutor in 1971. He's written about it in a fascinating book called Seattle Justice, The Rise and Fall of the Seattle Payoff System in Seattle. And he joins me now to talk about the book and this dark side of Seattle history. Who would have known? You know, probably most people today here that have come to the city uh, we look at it as a, a progressive city with op open government, but um, back in the, well, going way back, <laughs> Seattle and vice and corruption, that, that was part of what this place was all about. That's right. And one of the reasons I wrote the book is that most people who live here now weren't here then. And it's like talking about the Civil War to some people, but it's an important period, and what we did resonates with the issues today, not only here, but other places in the country like Ferguson and afterwards, where all these tragedies have happened. We'll talk more about that as we uh, kind of talk about the characters in the book. One thing I want to know is that uh, it's been, what, about 45 years now since you were King County prosecutor? That's exactly right, 45 years. Why did it take you so long to, to write the book? Well, I've never written a book before, and it was always intimidating. I liked telling stories. I was very good at op-eds and writing letters back when that was popular. And about 10 years ago, I decided to start accumulating these things. And I finally found a helper, which is what you need if you're gonna write a book. And Glenn McGilver, who's acknowledged for doing this, helped write some of the history, helped do the research in all the boxes of things I had left over from being in the office. So it really got started about three years ago. and. Now, here it is. This, this is really kind of how Seattle was born and raised and created, that, that there was vice, that there was uh, corruption, that it was just something that was uh, taken for granted. Yeah, it started really because the first people who worked here were working in the woods or, or out on fishing boats, and they came into Seattle on the weekends and they wanted some vice, frankly, and uh, it was available, and that began a, a yin and yang uh, period of almost 100 years where the city would be open and then a reform would come along and it would be closed, and the payoff system really developed as an institution in the 50s and 60s where it was a matter of city policy to tolerate what was illegal gambling under state laws. It was really a tolerance policy. That's what it was called, the period. tolerance policy. Yeah. And it wasn't a secret. Uh, the city council and the mayors, most of them, uh, thought this was the best way to control vice. They were very afraid of some evil person from back east coming out. Like the mafia coming out yes. to control Yes, so things. this was local control, but it was completely corrupt because uh, licenses would be granted to certain establishments and a list would be given to the city council every month of the approved establishments. They would get the licenses because they paid off the police who delivered the list. 
And if you didn't pay off, you were harassed until you did, and then you were licensed. So when we're talking about vice here, we're talking about prostitution. We're talking about gambling. What else? Well, the earliest uh, vice, uh, the back in the good old days, was prostitution and other, and also illegal drinking during prohibition. But the later phase of this really was all about gambling and and what we would call minor forms of gambling, like pull tabs, uh, uh, punch boards, things like that. And people thought it was penny ante stuff or bingo games uh, that were carried on with little old ladies up above the Pipe Place Market. But the amount of money was huge. And the people who held the master license for these activities, particularly in pinball, were making hundreds of thousands of dollars a year. Uh, and so they wanted to perpetuate this. They played the game with the city council and the mayor under the mayor and the city council's uh, naive assumption that this was the best way to control it. But the people who had the license were making tons of money. And that was never contested except a few times when the Colacurcio brothers, who had a rival uh, pinball operation, tried to muscle in, and there were some car bombs and things that happened then. Yeah, the Colacurcios. They were uh, colorful characters. They were indeed. They lasted they, until recently. That's too. right. That's right. Uh, either died or in jail. Yes. Know. Now, some of the mayors during this time tried to reform things, yes. right? Yes, they did. In fact, Gordon Clinton who also recently just died in his 90s, uh, he tried valiantly in the 50s uh, to stop this activity, stop the licensing, cut it all out, and it worked for a while. Actually, the police, the higher-ups who control this could turn it on and off you know, almost on a daily basis. So if the mayor was doing a reform effort or something was attracting attention, they'd turn it off and nothing would happen for a while. Then when it eased up, uh, it would go turn on again, and the money would flow up through the police department to the higher-ups. Bertha Landis, she was a, a yes. know, mayor of the city, and she was kind of, re of a reformer. Yeah, she point. actually uh, fired the police chief uh, when she was in power briefly when the mayor was out of town, and the mayor came back, and, and she later ran for mayor, and she was a reformer. That was in the 20s. Yeah. yeah. Well, let's move to the period of when a, a young Chris Bailey... Uh, you go. You grew up here, but uh, you attend college and uh, at Harvard back east. Uh, get your law degree. You come back here, um, and you you start practicing law. Yes, but it was boring. For you, right? Yes, I <laughs> I uh, I was never what they call a lawyer's lawyer. I practiced at a very good firm called Lane Powell and I was doing securities law, but my extracurricular activities were mainly political. Uh, and these reforms that we talk about, like uh, ending the blue laws and check the city council efforts. Uh, so when I had the chance to go to work for Slade Gorton after he was elected, yes. I jumped Attorney at General. that chance. Yes, and I think my, my bosses at Lane Powell were probably delighted to, to see me go because I wasn't really doing what young lawyers are supposed to do, working really hard, building lots of hours, and climbing the totem pole to partnership. Lots of my friends who were involved in these same activities, uh, reform efforts in the city in the late 60s, they were still tied to the, to the billable hour wheel, and they all became partners, and I just escaped from that. And that's really where I'm the one who ran in 1970 instead of one of them, because they were, a couple of them were former officers of the student government at the UW and things like that. But you're a young guy. You uh, really had very little experience. 
That's true. And you decide to run um, against a King County prosecutor who had been in office, Charles O'Carroll, for a long time. I think 1948 to yes, when you 22 years. Him. Yeah, yeah. He was uh, the closest thing we've ever had to a political boss in King County, and. Uh, he was very powerful, but at the same time, the state government uh, was under another Republican named Dan Evans. So there was a lot of tension between the King County and the state. But uh, what really got us interested in running against him was the fact that Wes Ullman had just been elected mayor, and he was a young Democrat, about the same age as we were. So those of us on the Republican side of these reforms, in, that, in those days, there were Republicans in Seattle. We we thought <laughs> a lot well, of them. Actually. Yeah, right. We Around should the city council. Yeah, yeah, we should take this on. And and I was just young enough and uh, you know ambitious enough to be the one that did it. And and then we were just hugely benefited by the background, journalistic investigations, the U.S. attorney uh, investigating corruption in King County, even though he really didn't have jurisdiction to prosecute. But he all this came out just at the time we were in the primary against Charles O'Carroll. Tell me about the meeting that you had with uh, Charles O'Carroll to tell him that you were going to run against him. The people who were in our inner circle planning the campaign were all about my age, and we'd been involved in these earlier activities. But we had one wonderful advisor named Mort Frayne, who was part of the establishment. He was about the same age as Carroll. They were very good friends. And he said to me one time, you've decided to do this, you really ought to call on Mr. Carroll as a courtesy and tell him face to face. So I said, fine, Mort, will you come with me? And he did. And in we went to this, this uh, big office with a gigantic table and arrayed at the other end of the table was the prosecuting attorney, Chuck Carroll, and on one side, William Boeing Jr., and on the other side, Victor Denny, an heir to the Pioneer family, and they were his political fundraisers and advisors. And it was sort of like the Holy Trinity in front of us, <laughs> uh, or a triptych perhaps. So it was obviously designed to just scare me away. And, and Carol told about how many deputies in his office had tried a dozen murder cases. They weren't qualified. And how he had a red phone by his bed that rang in the middle of the night. He had to rush off to crime scenes. And he just couldn't believe someone uh, this young and this inexperienced would do this. So we let him bluster and, and it didn't really work. We weren't going to be intimidated. So Mr. Frayn and I said, thank you very much. We just wanted to let you know and we politely left. Young and bold, were you? I guess so, yeah. yes. Let's talk about uh, Charles O'Carroll. Who was this guy? He is- Powerful uh, man. Yes, he's one of the most interesting characters in the history of Seattle and King County, and unfortunately, no one's ever written about him. Um, and he comes across in the book, of course, as the enemy we were trying to topple, and someone who was aware of the payoff system, which undoubtedly he was, but who ignored it, who did not investigate. Well, at the same time, he was prosecuting crimes like sit-ins by protesters, and people uh, dressed in the American flag. These were minor things that appealed to his sense of what should be done and what should not be done. So that was the essence of the corruption, was he ignored the most important things, and he prosecuted kids uh, for protesting and do, doing sit-ins. So, but he was a huge figure. He was one of three UW football players to have their jerseys permanently retired. That was in the 20s. He was an All-American. 
He would have been a Heisman winner if they'd had that then. And he, uh, he ran for prosecutor actually himself in the 30s at about the same age, but he lost in the Republican primary. So later he became the prosecutor by appointment and, and he developed a system of control of the courthouse. Uh, not in the sense that the judges were told what to do, but he got angry if they defied him and ruled uh, wrong in a particular case. There was one incidence where the, some kids from, at Franklin High School had done a sit-in Carroll had charged him with felonies. It came before a, a judge named Bob Utter, who later became a Supreme Court justice, and he threw the cases out. Now, the prosecutor brings the case. The judge is supposed to decide, but Carroll wanted more than that. So he called the judge and chewed him out over the phone, and Bob Utter told me that about a year ago before he died, and I said, well, Bob, what did he say? And he said, I can't tell you the words. He was too much of a gentleman. But that was a it's sort of intimid, ruled by intimidation, by bluster, and you're, he had all his deputies working in his campaigns. That was part of the deal. And all of this we needed to eliminate. So he really ran as a ran the office as a political operation. Yes, I, I call it a political fiefdom. And and that meant that if you signed up to work for him, you were you were being a professional prosecutor, and the staff was very good. There were no lightweights, but they knew part of the deal was to put money in the in the flower fund coffee can that came around every month. It was a percentage of their income, and everybody on the staff to the very bottom had to do that, uh, and to uh, put up signs during campaigns, and in the meantime, to actually call lawyers all throughout the city to make the list of Carroll supporters. I don't think he took money. Uh, you know, a lot of people think that he was at the top of the system because that's where the envelopes ended up, but I don't think there's any evidence of that. In fact, during the 68 gubernatorial campaign, the PI uh, really demanded that Governor Evans investigate. So Dan Evans went to Carroll's house and looked at his bank statements and everything. Dan told me later he felt like a financial voyeur. He did not <laughs> like it at all. But I think it wasn't money, it was power and... Uh, Control. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, you're this young guy, this young upstart, and by the way, there's a number of you that yes. are following this category. A guy named Sam Reed, who eventually yes. became Secretary of State, worked for Dan Evans. And actually, many of you were sort of uh, uh, the, the young followers of Dan Evans, Slade Gordon. That's right. And you're all part of a reform movement. You were young Republicans, idealistic. Yeah. Um, it, was, it was an interesting time in this city, I think. Because also, I think Republicans and Democrats, they had a different relationship. Oh, yes. In fact, this organization we talk about called CHECK, Check. which means Choose an Effective City Council, was deliberately bipartisan. So people like Alan Monroe, who ended up uh, really being a major force in Wes Allman's election in 1969, he was part of Czech. And some of us on the Republican side were part, and it wasn't nonpartisan, it was bipartisan. There's a big difference. And so the first two candidates we backed were Phyllis Lamphere, who's a Democrat, and Tim Hill, a Republican. And there was a big uh, effort to get us to endorse Sam Smith, who would have been a second Democrat, but it would have unbalanced uh, our system. So we only supported two. Uh, Sam got elected without our support, which was fine, but Czech really reformed the city council over a period of about three elections, so it was completely different by the mid-70s. Was Lem Howe, who was an African-American lawyer in this town, yes, um, 
and still a voice out there. Yes. Uh, was he active in that time with you? Oh, guys? absolutely. Lem and a Republican named Cam Hall were the leaders of the initiative campaign to overthrow the blue laws. And the, the blue laws in the state, well, probably some people don't know, yeah. that you couldn't drink on Sunday. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And you couldn't do almost anything on Sunday. <laughs> on Sundays, everything was closed yeah, down. Yeah, it was right. commercial. I remember that as a kid. Yeah, and so the two of them hatched this initiative, and it was a, it was a funny alliance because it was the restaurant owners who did not want the wine to be taken away at midnight on Saturday, and the Seventh-day Adventists, who didn't like the fact that their sacred day was not being honored, whereas the Christian one was. So this, this produced petitions and the most signatures ever in the history of the state up to that <laughs> point. Isn't that mix. wonderful? Yeah, I know yeah. that. Yeah. yeah, what a weird mix of people. Yeah, but so. anyway, Lem came out here originally to work either for the Rosalini campaign in 64 or for the Johnson for President campaign. I'm not sure which. And he was supposed to go back to New York, but he never did because he got involved as a clerk on the court and then in these political things. And And he's a good example of the active Democrats who were part of all these things. But when it became a partisan election, they went their way, we went our way. Um, so you decide to run, but uh, Mr. Carroll just pretty much is going to avoid you. That's right. That's Kinda, right. This is what a lot of incumbents do today anyway, but he'd been in office for so long, so he wasn't taking you seriously. No, he was not. He didn't think we had a chance, but the worst thing he could do, because he was a very shrewd politician, was to pay attention to us, uh, dignify us by replying to our press releases, our demands that he investigate the, the corruption. So we, um, we decided we had to smoke him out. And in the middle of the summer, we had someone actually tracking him uh, and reporting in every two hours by payphone, which is what you did in those days. So one afternoon, I was at Franklin High School. No, it was Garfield High School. And, the, and we checked in, and uh, our guy out following Carol had said, he's coming to the Lake City Library. So we rushed out there. I remember driving into the parking lot, and there was his chief of staff on the phone, on the payphone in the parking lot. I think he was trying to say to Carol, don't come, because at that moment, King TV arrived, the PI arrived, uh, both of which were out to get him. And so he suspected, this aide suspected I was coming, which is what happened. So uh, it was the 46 district Republicans, very conservative, uh, Carol's people. So uh, Keith Dysart and I sat in the back of the room. He was introduced. Keith was your driver. Keith was, no, Keith wasn't the driver. Was, he was the agent day? who was, who was uh, trying to track Carol and find him. Okay. The driver was a teenager who oh, I can't okay, remember. Okay, okay. Yeah, that's most of, they ended up being teenagers. <laughs> anyway, so uh, Dysart stood up and said, Mr. Carroll, why won't you debate your opponent? And of course he's there, he's trapped into saying, of course I will, anywhere, anytime. At which point I jump up, march to the front, and we had a brief confrontation during which he accused me of being a tool of Nelson Rockefeller and the Eastern establishment. But I got the main thing we wanted was the, a picture in the PI the next morning of me pointing my finger at him in an accusatory way. So we got the photo, we had a brief uh, discussion and uh, King TV captured it all uh, without a lot of light, so it wasn't great film. And after that, it was a race. So that was a big important thing. We call it the Lake City Ambush. <laughs> but it was a turning point, wasn't it? It was. Yeah. After that, yeah. people knew what was going on, and, and 
course, we benefited from a very favorable press uh, in terms of the PI, Seattle Magazine, and King Five. Uh, they were out to get Carol, and we were the instrument of, of that. So, how about the Times? Were the Times supported Carol. Their editorial head was a man named Ross Cunningham, who was a very close friend of Carol's. In fact, there was one time when Carol did not get the highest rating uh, from the Municipal League. Uh, they didn't get, give him an outstanding, they gave him a very good. So, Cunningham called the Municipal League and said, You've got to reconsider this. So, he went there and warned about the dangers of, of outside gambling interests if Carroll was not uh, reelected, and they changed their rating to outstanding. Now, that was a few years back. Mm -hmm. But no, no, Ross was very supportive of Carroll, and they did support me in the finals, but only after Carroll was gone. The Wilson twins. The Wilson twins were reporters for the Seattle Times, so it's interesting. Uh, and their efforts at investigative reporting was back in, they were back in 1967, so this is a few years back, but they're the ones that really first dug into the payoff system. Uh, and they did a series, and of course, Carol ignored it, uh, not much happened. And it was a few years later that the PI got on the case, and Lou Guzzo was the editorial person there who later was the key advisor to Dixie Lee Ray when she was governor, and Lou just hated Carroll. So uh, they went after him hammer and tong. So both papers had a history in this uh, exposure of corruption. But at the same time as the PI was going after him, 68-69, that's when Stan Pitkin was appointed U.S. Attorney by President Nixon, and he really uh, did the first serious investigate, the investigation of the, uh, of the uh, payoff system. So. You run, uh, he pretty much, Mr. Carroll is pretty much ignoring you. Didn't really take you seriously until you're going into the primary, right? I don't know what he was thinking or, or what his campaign committee, if there was one, was doing, but he, he conducted his campaign just like he always had. He had a, a list of lawyer endorsements. But we decided to turn the tables on him. Uh, the young lawyers, most of whom were friends of ours, even though there were lots of Democrats, uh, they decided to conduct a secret poll among the lawyers, whether they supported Carroll or Bailey or Lem Howell or Ed Heavey. And it was typical of like a mail-in ballot. There was an inside envelope, and you had to sign the outside envelope, so it was confidential. And uh, the envelopes came back, and out of about 1,700 lawyers, uh, we had the majority, and Carroll was way back in second place. So we had a press conference to announce this. His whole strategy of lawyer endorsements had backfired. He denounced our poll as a fraud. So the next thing we did is one of our young lawyer friends had another press conference in which he held up the envelope where Chuck Carroll had voted in this poll that he called a fraud. So his signature was on the outside envelope. <laughs> so take me to election day and election night, which, uh, yeah, well, we're talking for you. We're, yeah, we're talking about the primary. Primary, right. We started to get a feeling, I mean, you don't, there weren't polls uh, of any kind or any scientific value, but we got a feeling that people were coming our way, people were starting to wave at us and things like that. Lots of coffee hours, lots of good press. But on September 17th, the day the, after the election, when the votes were counted and we'd beat Carroll almost two to one, we were, we were just overcome and, of course, very excited, very enthusiastic, and very surprised. 
because we had defeated this man who'd never been touched before in an election. And of course, six weeks later in the final, we barely won. <laughs> and that's because, you know, it was a blanket primary right. in those days. And our most stalwart supporters in the primary were Democrats who hated this man and voted for me as the instrument to get rid of him. Once he was gone, they went back to Ed Heavey, who was the Democratic candidate. So, okay, what was it like after you defeated him, and did you have a conversation with him at all during that time? Well, after the primary, and he knew he was going to be leaving, he actually did invite me, and I went with a couple of my close aides uh, down to the office, and he offered me a job. Uh, as sort of a tiding over situation, which I did not like at all because I thought it was compromising. So we turned that down politely, just like we'd said hello to him politely before the election. Uh, and when we did win the final election in a recount, uh, I arrived at the office in January and uh, there was no transition. Uh, the office had been cleaned out. Uh, all the office manuals on policies were gone. So he really didn't appear to have any interest in helping us get started, which in many ways was good. We had a completely clean slate, uh, and uh, I was fortunate enough to be able to hire Dave Berner, who was a very active Democrat as the chief criminal deputy. Norm Mailing became the chief civil deputy, and later the prosecutor, Gene Anderson, helped us create the fraud division. So we had this cadre of people, all about 32 years old, but we kept all the professional staff. We didn't want to fire everybody, which is what Carroll did when he first came in because they weren't Republicans. So I had Dave Berner, the Democrat, go to all the deputies and say, you know, we want you to be part of the team. And we promoted some of them to be assistant chiefs, including a woman named, uh, now named Pat Aiken, who was later a distinguished judge. We promoted women. We began to hire minorities and women and did all the things that Carroll really hadn't done. So over the next few years, we built a professional office and created what we call the justice model, which is that you treat everybody the same, no matter who they are, uh, and you not, are not just a passive prosecutor who waits for the police to bring you a file, but you get involved in sentencing reform and other issues, juvenile court reform. So I started that, and Norm Mailing and now Dan Satterberg have done even more of that. Dan is now a leader in the country on the justice model, which is really important now because I think if it had existed in some of these communities with these tragic shootings, uh, maybe they wouldn't have happened. I can't prove that, but it's a big deal now to have this justice model in all communities around the country. But you get into office and now, um, you know, you, you had defeated Mr. Carroll because of the, the the vice and the graft, the corruption that had been going on, right, and that he had turned his back on, not you know paying any attention to it. So, you decide you're going to build a case there. Oh yeah, we we had we were really uh, obligated to help clean this up through a grand jury investigation. Now, a grand jury in those days was a rarity because all cases are normally filed by the prosecutor himself. They're not a result of an indictment by a grand jury. Now, in many places in the country, that's the normal system, and it is in the federal system. But in order to get subpoena power and the things you need for, for an investigation of the whole system, we needed a grand jury. So everybody knew that would happen. I asked the Superior Court to call a grand jury. It was convened and sat from May through September. 
And our biggest case was a conspiracy case against all the people we believed had designed and maintained the corrupt system. And that included Charles O'Carroll, a former sheriff, high-ranking police officials. There was another Charles Carroll, too. Oh, yes. Charles M. Carroll was known as Streetcar Charlie. He was uh, the chairman of the City Council Licensing Committee, and that's why he was included in the indictment. Uh, he was later dismissed. Uh, he had a very good lawyer named Bill Dwyer, who became quite famous, uh, who uh, figured out a way to get him dismissed. And we joined in that because uh, he had spotted something in the immunity statutes that really made it impossible to proceed against Charles M. Carroll. And his son, uh, Terry Carroll, uh, has become became a, judge. A, a very important judge and now is at Seattle U and a good friend of mine. So. Terry and I have managed to survive the fact that we indicted his father. <laughs> now, there's a story for you. Yeah. So, okay, you go through this. How long does this all take? Well, the grand jury sat from May through September, so that's a few months. And in July is when the major indictment was handed down, and that's the way we start the book, is opening that up, that sealed indictment, and calling the mayor because we wanted him to, yeah. yeah, we wanted Wes to be aware of the fact that some very important people were included. Uh, and uh, then we just had to build cases. We had to set up a whole different office in the Smith Tower with security because the investigation of the police officers involved in the system was very disruptive to the police department. So it was not popular with the mayor or the police chief who'd come in from California and had nothing to do with this. But that's what we had to do. We, we also had to have our regular deputies working with the police on murders, burglaries, robberies, whatever. So we wanted our deputies who were not involved in the grand jury investigation to be able to look at the detective in front of them and say, I have nothing to do with this. You know, I'm just here to help you get this case filed. So that was really important. And the case itself, uh, as I said, the indictment was handed down in July. The whole case was dismissed by a visiting judge in September. We went to the Supreme Court. We got it reinstated. That took six months. And we had endless delays and wrangling uh, so that the final convictions were nowhere near as many as the indicted people. And they really didn't conclude until 1973. So this went on for a long time. I, w I was watching a, a speech that you gave uh, at the Discovery Institute, and you were asked a question by one of the uh, attendants, uh, people that attended there, and they, they asked why you went the consp conspiracy route. Why not, you know, yes. I think the bribery part of it. Or, it's a or very good question, and the answer is that we wanted to expose the entire system in one document, in one picture, so to speak. All the people involved, how it worked, rather than have a series of, of individual prosecutions for bribery or, or some other state crime. And that's the way we thought it was important to do it because it told the story. And even though uh, our convictions were few, we think the story is what really ended the system. As I say in the book, it drove a stake through the heart of the corrupt payoff system. And I think if we'd done it piece by piece, it would have attracted less attention. We might have gotten more convictions. I don't know. But I thought it was really important to tell the story. And the only way to do that was to describe a, an agreement between people to organize and maintain a corrupt system. So Charles O'Carroll did not come under this at all. He didn't get hit by this at all. He was indicted. He was indicted. Oh, yes. He was indicted. But he, but he 
He, he was eventually dismissed uh, along with several others on various grounds that are too detailed to get into. But, oh yeah, no, that was important uh, because his part of the system was to ignore violations of state criminal laws that he knew were occurring. That was the point. Who else ended up big names? Well, there were several high-ranking police officials, including an assistant chief who had been uh, previously tried by uh, the feds by Stan Pitkin for, for perjury, which is the only thing he could get him for because it was, uh, the crimes were all state crimes. Uh, so there were, I'd say, six high-ranking police officials, a former sheriff, uh, some licensing people, anyone who we thought had a part in maintaining the system. When you look back on this, I mean, how much money were we talking about? Well, the money's pretty big. Uh, in the 60s, before I came along, uh, the license fees to the city for licenses to do the illegal gambling were about half a million dollars a year in license fees. And we think that the actual income to those who held the master licenses was many hundreds of thousands of dollars a year. And so that's why it was a political thing, because they had to keep this going by getting the city council not to disrupt it. And when Mayor Clinton tried to clean things up, he ran into all kinds of headwinds uh, from political contributions and people who wanted to maintain the system. So it was a, it was a big deal. And, and it's important to remember that. And that's why I think even though it's 45 years later, there's some lessons to be learned. And as Mike McKay, a former U.S. attorney said, you know, when I, we were trying to figure out why did I write this book? Well, to tell the story, to do reform discussions, but mainly to recognize that the justice model we created is a precious community asset that has to be guarded and maintained. And all it would take is the election of a prosecutor who did not believe in the justice model. Uh, and the whole thing could start over again because the prosecutor is really very powerful in our system. Um, did, I think you said that Charles Lecary had no evidence that he took money? No, his, his part of the conspiracy was to uh, maintain it by not attacking or investigating the payoff system. Okay. Yeah. So basically letting it go. That's right. And, you know, we don't know if he took money. We, we knew he met with Ben Saichi, the yeah. head of the, uh, of the master license for the pinballs. There's a grainy picture in the book. Yeah, that, the yeah. PI, uh, the, this photographer, Dave Potts, who's still around, he came up to me at the library meeting. He hid in the bushes until he got this picture because he knew that Carol was meeting with Ben Saichi a certain day of every month. And Saichi was carrying a black bag, lots of suspicious-looking things. Yeah. Well, let's talk about now because you spend uh, some time in the afterward of the right. book talking about, um, well, what, what Seattle has gone through recently with the police department and the reform efforts there, as well as what has happened nationally. Yes. Um, and and l let me also note here that Mr. Carroll was, uh, because of the political parts of things, people of color, communities of color were, were not treated well under his No, he, it, unfortunately, as the 60s went on, it was a time of uh, protest of all different kinds, the Vietnam War eventually, and before that, uh, attempts in Seattle to get African Americans hired by construction companies, and the construction companies were anxious to have them in the, doing the work and become apprentices, but the unions fought that. So uh, there were many things going on, and, and Carroll believed that 
disruptions and protests were very bad things. And, and so he went after those and ignored the more important things. So the lesson for today, and I think if you look at what Dan Satterberg is doing, he's part of an effort to end what some people call the era of mass incarceration. By, by intercepting a young person's criminal career, let's call it, uh, by drug court or something at an early stage, and hopefully straightening that person out. Also reviewing some of the cases uh, that came during the tough on crime era in the 80s, during the three strikes and you're out. So to me, the justice model means not just good prosecutions and treating everybody equally, but being actively involved in making the justice system work better and communicating that to the community. So when something bad does happen, as it will eventually, these shootings seem to come along every couple of weeks. When something does happen, there's a, a feeling in the community, let's talk about the African-American community, that the, the, the system will work and that someone's not going to be ignored for prosecution just because it's a white police officer shooting a black fleeing person. So that's that trust is the whole reason why the justice system works and it's community by community. And so that's why I applaud what Norm Mailing did and what Satterberg is doing to try to export this model. I mean, if Seattle can export coffee, airplanes and software, why not export the justice model to other parts of the country where it could really help those communities. So that's what you think has been a failing in communities like a Ferguson or Baltimore or New it, York? It's, each one is different, of course, and they all have problems that they're dealing with, some under federal supervision like has happened here. But what's happened here under Chief O'Toole is a good example. Real progress has been made, even though they were really under the gun. And it's gonna take a long time. I mean, these are step-by-step -step things. You can't just change a culture of any institution by flipping a switch. Uh, but starting along that line means that in our community, and if it were done in others, and there are some others, like Cyrus Vance, a former Seattleite in Manhattan, is doing the same thing. The, I'm visiting uh, this week with the DA in Milwaukee. He's doing the same thing. So if these models become known and people in other communities where there's trouble or a dysfunctional system copy them, that is all to the good. So that's why I talk about Seattle exporting the justice model. It seemed to me that the, perhaps the biggest issue with police and community of, colors, of color, it, it really has to do with trust and this lack Absolutely. of Absolutely. the police and yeah, you're it, gonna be treated fairly. It is trust and I think the prosecutor as an instrument of justice needs to build a fabric and a relationship with those communities. Like we hired a wonderful man named Doug Wheeler as our community relations person and he did two things. African-American. He's an African-American from a wonderful family full of foster children, one of whom was Jimi Hendrix, which I didn't know at the time. Uh, but he helped us in the office because a person of color who was a witness to a crime was reluctant to cooperate with our, our deputies in building a case. So he intervened there and made the person comfortable as a witness. He also went into the community and I went into schools with him leading in front of me to talk about justice. And the most dramatic thing he did was uh, we had a very active Black Panther chapter here. I think it was the second one after Oakland. So we got a call one day that out across the street from Garfield or near Garfield was a confrontation brewing. And it's because the Panthers had learned 
that the deli or the sandwich shop uh, was uh, really a drug sales operation and you'd go in and order a tuna sandwich, you'd get a plastic bag of a certain illegal substance. If you ordered a salami sandwich, you got a different one. So it was a very sophisticated thing. So they were across the street from this place with their rifles aimed at the sky. And the cops were called, the police were in front of the establishment wondering, what am I gonna do? Here's a, a group of Black Panthers with weapons. So Doug Wheeler went in to that. He showed his ID to the police officers and, and that he's from the prosecutor's office. And he said, as long as they don't lower those weapons and point the weapons at a person, they're not violating the law. Then he went across the street to the Panthers and said, keep those weapons aimed at the sky. So basically he diffused a situation. And that's, I think, a big job for a prosecuting attorney, even though it's outside your technical description of filing cases. And the Panthers, let me understand that, were they there to protest against that operation? Yes. Yeah, because yeah, they, they wanted to close it down. Yeah, they weren't going to yeah. shoot the place, but they were there to attract attention. Right. And that's exactly what happened. And Doug got to know what was going on. And I'm not sure how we eventually prosecuted this sandwich shop, but it cast a harsh light on what was going on that was very disruptive to the black community because it was selling them drugs. While I have you here, I just want to ask you a couple of other questions just related to what's happening today. And that is that, how do you view when there are some of the shootings that have happened, such as in the States? Uh, well, of course, we, we've had shootings here in Seattle, and, and we talk about John T. Williams. We right. Talk, we talk about uh, what's happening and still, uh, you know, active in, in Pasco with uh, the shooting of Antonio uh, Matez Zambrano. Um, and yet, you know, Franklin County prosecutor has decided not to do anything as far as bring charges there. Right. For a prosecutor, how tough is that and what do you Well, th these were the toughest cases we ever had and there's some in the book uh, involving police officers shooting uh, fleeing black men uh, under various circumstances. We, we charged in one case, we didn't charge in a couple and each time this happened it was hugely controversial. If we charged the police officer, we got raves from the ACLU and, and various members of the community. If we didn't, we got the opposite. Uh, and if we, if we charged the officer, we got lots of letters from everybody, including his wife, about how unjust this was. The point is that these things will happen. I mean, one happened in Minneapolis recently. It seems to much too often. Uh, and each community has to deal with it in its own way. Pasco is a very different place than here. I don't really know the facts of that. Uh, but I do know that uh, even though Dan Satterberg was not able to charge in the case of the woodcarver, because our, our state law has a huge requirement to, to successfully prosecute, you have to prove malice uh, on the part of the officer. That's very difficult, not just carelessness, but malice. So, but even though Dan got lots of emails, he explained it, he attempted to meet with the family, uh, it was it was diffused. It, it still doesn't sit well with some people. It did result in the federal intervention, uh, but I think Dan proved that the prosecutor had the had the trust of the community to a great extent. And this is something you have to build over time. You can't just do it when there's a crisis. So I haven't got a guarantee for these other places that have dysfunctional criminal justice systems. But people have to talk to each other. You have to look for leaders. Like Norm Mailing, for example, called every African-American minister who moved to town just to get acquainted, which is a, exactly the right thing because that minister 
when a crisis occurred would hopefully be someone who could get involved and, and make the community understand what had happened. The book is Seattle Justice, The Rise and Fall of the Police Payoff System in Seattle. We're going to uh, post some links about the book online at kcts9.org. Also have some more information about Chris Bailey and his, uh, his background and his days as a King County prosecutor. And we thank him so much for being here. And uh, <laughs> fascinating, really fascinating. Thank you, Enrique. Yeah. I've enjoyed it. And it's important Seattle history because I think a lot of people here really don't know this. No, they and don't. We're a different Seattle today. Yes, yeah, so but uh, so to, uh, to remedy that, everyone should buy the book. Right? <laughs> I, That's I what think, I can say. Okay, you can say that. All right, here we go. <laughs> now this has been the KCTS Nine Digital Studios podcast. I'm Enrique Cerna, and we'll talk more next time.